having that experience. But at the same time, hitting an issue which is a uh, uh, number one controversial issue, so in that sense it becomes interesting. Uh, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, that controversial things tend to be of great interest to people. But um, it's one that's important in very, very general terms. Not only is it uh, this issue of Das Torah, and, uh, and obviously I'm going to need to define what that means, it's an, it's an old debate, it's an old controversy. It was a major, almost, uh, you know, polemical kind of debate starting in 1960. And it was really out there in buying essays from people from the 1960s up to the 2000s. And then it kind of settled down, and I'm going to offer my take on why it settled down a little. And then it's come back a little now. And that's why I said that's another reason to do this topic. How did it come up now is with the pandemic and COVID and the whole discussion. So at least certainly in Eretz Yisrael, where, where I'm living, it's very, very big the, the, how much say Das Torah has in how we react and behave and handle the pandemic. And a lot of things, that I think, that are uh, said in haste and without fully understanding and comprehending what Das Torah means and why is Das Torah have a standing, uh, have resulted from this. Because, you know, if you think about it, does it make any sense? Making a, what should be a purely medical decision on one hand, on terms of vaccinating and masks, and should we wear masks? And uh, I, To my amazement, it became a hashkafic issue. Right? Why is this a hashkafic issue, whether I should get vaccinated or wear masks? So obviously there, everyone will have a take on this, but um, what, what happened is the, the gedole Yisroel, which we'll talk about that expression as well, have, have come out on it, and they had to come out on it, and they, even the gedole of the modern Orthodox community here, right? Rav Wolig and Rav Shechter, for example, uh, were, were put in a position where they had to make statements about these issues. And one would think that it really, you know, speaking to Rabbi Glatt, for example, Rabbi Dr. Glatt, who's an infectious disease expert. So he's the one I, he's the one I called right away. You know, I was most interested in hearing his take on many of these issues. And isn't it intuitively just a medical issue? Yet, um, I'm going to try to make the case that no, not necessarily. That there is a place for Das Torah, as there is in every aspect of life, and to get a perspective on it from somebody who came from, I'll admit, a bias the other way. Like my, my upbringing and my background, I'm coming from a certain bias, which I'll share with you as we go through uh, some, of the, some of the issues that one thing that I've been zochet to do since I've been in, in Israel is I've had uh, opportunity through the invitation of uh, many different people to have uh, isolated time with Gedola Yisrael, very, very important Rabbanim that are uh, the, the main names that we're calling Gedola Yisrael, and ask them medical issues and see just exactly, from different perspectives, exactly how significant it really is. And I came in very biased in a different direction, and I, and I want to share with you my kind of, my personal education in this regard. So I'll start with this. Um, a little review of the background of the controversy will help understand sort of the setting for the discussion. I mentioned that starting in the 1960s, there was this uh, 
debate that rose up, how important is it for, let's say, klal issues, national issues for the Jewish people, that the uh, decisions be made by uh, a gadol, by a rav, as opposed to other lay leadership. So the debate kind of uh, had a lot of straw men, as many of these debates tend to do, created by each side. So for example, if you look at the first page of the handout, that's where we're going to begin. So there's this very, very famous Gemara in Bava Basra that became a sort of uh, focal point for the original uh, sort of polemics regarding this issue. It says over there, Miyom Shechara Beis HaMikdash Natla Nevua Min HaNabiyim Nitna L'Chacham So the Gemara then discusses the, you know, that since the time that Nevua ended and there was no more overt Nevua in the Navi sense, so and so the Nebuah went over to the Chacham. So the Gemara is not bothered by the fact that the Chachamim, and we have to of course say who are the Chachamim, but who is the Chachamim referred to in this Gemara? Is it just Chazal, let's say the Sanhedrin, or the, the Chazal from the times of uh, Gemara of Mishnah, or is it uh, even contemporary Chachamim, are they included in this? But more striking is do we really think that Chachamim are operating with Nebuah, with Ruach HaKodesh? Is that, is that how it, 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 it's going to go? Because that was one of the strawmen. One of the strawmen created by the antagonists to the concept of Das Torah was, oh, yeah, they think that they're, they actually have Ruach HaKodesh and Nebuah, and that gives them uh, an edge over everybody else who doesn't have it. And that's why we have to be kafuf to them. We have to you know, submit. And that was another catchphrase that was thrown out a lot to what they're saying. So they said they think from this Gemara they're taking it that way. The Gemara was bothered by something else. So Gemara is saying, well, the implication of what we just say that the, the Nebuah was taken from the Nevi'im and given to the Chachamim, does that mean that none of the Nevi'im are Chachamim? That doesn't make that much sense. Could it be? So they said, no. It says that the, there were two types of Nevi'im. This is Pshat, according to Rashi. Anyway, there are Nevi'im Chachamim and Nevi'im that are not Chachamim, and the ones that were Chachamim retained it, and the ones that weren't did not. What exactly that means is a, it's a longer and more involved discussion, but we'll just take two. If you look at the bottom of the page, the Ramban and the Ritva, they, they, they put perspective on this that I think is going to be very much the real uh, direction in which this should be taken. And they say, what is it talking about? So the Ramban says, I won't read it inside, so I want to get, move things along a little more. This is really just background part of the discussion. The Ramban and the Ritva, at the end of the day, you put them together, what they're saying is, what's being said here by this Gemara, the actual Pshat in this Gemara, is that they have Ruach HaKodesh and Nebuah in the sense of their, their, their Seich. In other words, they're gifted. If you really want to understand it, you could take it and say, there are two ways of really understanding it at the end. Either they, Hashem blessed them with some type of Chochma Ruach HaKodesh, Chochma in that sense, or that's just their genetic endowment, which to me is the same thing. In other words, some people are genetically uh, give, gifted with high IQs or whatever it is, and, and they, they have it. They have it. The ones who are the big Tamei Chachamim, one of their characteristics is clearly they're very, very intelligent people. And that's an advantage that they have. And that's the most mild way of saying it. But the critics, you know, pointed, and this, the middle piece is from one of the critics of Das Torah, who is, who is very 
thought it was getting too much uh, decision-making power. So they quoted from Rabbi Bernard Weinberger. Now, I know someone here is from Brooklyn, so he, he was a very well-known Rav in, in Brooklyn back in the day. And uh, he put out the first essay that started the whole discussion going and the debate over the Astera. And he had said something that I thought was misconstrued by some and, and taken well beyond what he meant. He said, Gedali Yisrael possesses special endowment or capacity to penetrate objective reality, recognize the facts as they really are, and apply the pertinent halachic principles. This endowment is a form of Ruach HaKodesh, as it were, bordering, if only remotely, on the periphery of prophecy. So he's, he's certainly speaking dramatically, but I think he's giving shot from the Ritva and the Ramban at the end of the day. Gedali Yisrael inherently ought to be the final, and here's where the Nafkamina, here's where what this leads to where really the controversy grew, is he said, since they are these very gifted people, not mamish nevuah, they don't actually have nevuah, they don't actually have necessarily the ability to, to predict the future like a navi, or, or have a Shem's voice communicating with them through dreams or through anything, like the way the Ramban puts it, you know, the nevuah chazon, that they see things, they have visions, and they, they get that type of nevuah, but they have this chokhmah, What's, what's it mean? They ought to be the final and sole arbiters of all aspects of Jewish communal policy and questions of hashkafa. And even knowledgeable rabbis who may differ with the gedolim on a particular issue must submit to the superior wisdom of the gedolim and demonstrate emunas chacham. And that just got the ball rolling as soon as this statement was made. So people, and you got to realize what the 60s were, right? Everyone who's at least my age knows what the 60s were, even though I was a little kid, a very tiny little kid. Right? But in the 60s was the, the age of super autonomy, where in general society, uh, autonomy was making things change and happen in many areas. Medicine, for sure. You know, medicine, we, we were always accused of being paternalistic. And I don't know if it was true or not, but in Israel, it's still true, but whatever. So, but here, here that, there was a cry towards autonomy, all bioethicists in the secular sense. Here in the United States, where I have a lot of experience, uh, the, the single ethical principle that rules almost every decision, when they, and I'm going to tell you about one in a little bit, when you're called in for, one, for a problem in the hospital is precedence is given to autonomy. The ability for the person to decide for themselves. This is not a Jewish idea. It's a secular idea in, in, in this type of expression, where whatever I want to do with my body, that's, what I, that's what's going to be making the decision. And uh, that, that was the, the rally cry in many, many areas of, of, of life. So at that time, it was a particularly sensitive time to come out and say, well, you're about to lose your autonomy because you're going to have to listen to exactly what the Gedolim said. And the Jewish community is going to be led by their decisions. So that led to the, to the give and take. If you turn the page, I'm going to start to say why I think it died down, and we're not going to make much of this. Because it, it was, you know, if you read, it's interesting reading and uh, to see the give and take and the almost personal nature of the discussion. Ultimately, I think the reason it died down to some degree is because the two sides ended up realizing they're not that far apart. They're really not that far apart, and, and I'll demonstrate it. One of the major sources for, the, for one side understanding of Das Torah and the authority given over to Gedolim is from Mikhtab Eliyahu, from Rav Dessler. But Dessler had a uh, person writing to him 
who had spoken to Rav Elchanan Vassaman, Zatal, and, and he wanted to go against him. He said, I think I know better, right? He had told him some advice on a particular issue, and the, the person was writing to Rav Dester saying, am I wrong, but I think that I think I could decide this better myself. So Rav Dessler, you know, just said to him, he didn't, you know, come out and say, what are you, crazy, you can't do that. He just said to him, look, I want to just give you some understanding of, of this issue of the significance of the statement of, of advice, even, from somebody like Rav Elchanan And he says, you know, he's a Rebbe, Riddle Chafetz Chaim, and these are very, very important people. And he starts to add to what's special about them, that they should, ultimately, he concludes, be the ones who call the shots, at least for Klal Yisrael. And this is going to be a very important sort of uh, two areas that we're going to focus on. One is the Klal Yisrael role of Gedol Yisrael, and the one that's really relevant for our discussion, the personal. There is another role, and it's, it's not, you're not that familiar with it here in America, but uh, in, in Israel it's very, very significant, where decisions in medicine for sure, but in business and many other areas, people will not make a move without asking Agadol ultimately for his advice. So we're going to look at you know, both those areas. The, the general debate originally was over the club, over them making decisions for the Jewish people as opposed to you know, one of the presidents of the organizations or, or something like that. And Reb is saying, well, not only are they very, very intelligent, which gives them the edge that we've mentioned, but he writes, they have, there's a certain level of a chryas that they're willing to take. They are taking responsibility. They are feeling that it's not about them. They're not looking for any political gain. They're not looking for any praise. All they want to do is help Klai Yisrael. That gives them a tremendous edge. That gives them that a listening that's warranted just on that alone. So he, he tells them, he says, all you had to do is see their meetings over the needs of Klai Yisrael and experience what it was like to watch the way they sweated over the good that's due to Klai Yisrael. Just experience that and then you're going to appreciate the type of people they were. And that everything they did was with incredible integrity. And he goes on and on and on. So much so that I want to just skip down to the English part, which is where Rav Aaron Feldman, Rav Aaron Feldman is Rosh Shiva of Ner Yisrael. He is like, I would say, one of the major contemporary spokespeople for, you know, what we'll call um, the, the side that's very, very in favor of Das Torah, that, that promotes it greatly. So he was answering one of the detractors of Das Torah, and he, he, pulled, he called, called in this Rodessa, and what, what, he get, what he does for our purposes, he's going to like single out the qualities that give them the edge and to be in a position where they're the ones that are going to make major decisions for Klai Yisrael. So he says like this, after he tells, you know, he, he says Rav Dessler told this person that he should be willing to be uh, a little humble and realize Rav Elchanan's greatness and prodigious intellect, right, is not due to divine visitation, but it's just, you know, like we were saying before, when he talks about some of the things, he means it metaphorically, don't get so turned off by the fact that they're compared to, uh, to uh, a Nevi'im. None of that matters. In brief, Rav Dessler's view is that the Torah should be relied upon. Why? Its leaders are brilliant. They're informed by the Torah. 
Right? I'll never forget, you know, Rav Aaron Lichtenstein, when he has a Q&A, invariably people put him on a desert island. Right? What do I mean by that? There's always, you know, Rav Aaron used to give Q&As in uh, Wednesday nights in Gross, in Eric's Israel. I don't know who's ever been there. And they're very special because just it's, for me personally, I love everything that comes out of it, that came out of his mouth. You know, it's very, very much an, an adherent of Rav Aaron. So, um, he, he was one time, you know, asked, what's your favorite safer? So in order to pose the question, they always said, if you're on a desert island, like, what's going to be your favorite safer? What safer would you take with you? So he said, Ramban al-Khamsh. That was his actual answer. He thinks that was number one for many reasons. I wish I had time to go into Then another one is one that got me really interested in them putting him on a desert island because there's this very controversial issue in medical halacha about treating a non-B'nai bris on Shabbos. Can you be Machal Shabbos for non-B'nai bris? So, halacha lemaisa, everybody knows, of course you can. You should eva, eva the pikot nefesh, there's many reasons why you can, but for many of us, and I include myself, there's a certain uh, moral sensitivity, with, that's it. The only reason you can retreat them is because maybe something's going to happen to us. So they put Rav Darin on a desert island again, right? And they said, Rav Darin, you know, Let's say you were on a desert island, it was just you and the non-B'nai bris, and it was Shabbos, and you had to be Mechal Shabbos for it, right? So they would narrow it down to that. So, I won't go into that, that'll open up a whole, we won't talk about our topic at all, we'll get right into that topic, but we could do it maybe some other time, but, so presumptuous, right? But this issue, so on this, um, somebody asked him, why... The, the question, I forget, I forget the exact wording, but I'll paraphrase it, was what, why, do we, why do we have to listen to Gdola? Now, Rav Aaron, by the way, as you'll see from some of the things we're going to see here, had a very balanced perspective on this issue that we're talking about. But one thing that he felt very strongly about was he didn't like this question. He said, why should, just because he's a Gdol Torah, right, why should that be relevant for so many issues that we seem to need their opinion for? So he screamed, and you got to know Ravan, screaming, that's the impact, because he's the most gentle person. And he said it like three or four times. He said, Torah is And that's a bottom line. It's every aspect of life the Torah is involved. And of course it's always going to be relevant. It absolutely has to be relevant. And it's an, it, he felt it was an absurd question. So over here, Feldman is saying basically the same thing. He's saying they're brilliant and they're informed by the Torah. That itself is why a believing Jew who's committed to the Torah themselves has to realize the authorities on Torah are the place to go. But obviously it's not that simple because there'll be areas like, you know, if I started to talk to them about ECMO or, you know, LVAD devices, they're probably not going to be holding necessarily that much in it. So is it just the informed of Torah enough? Obviously not. We'll see. So, who possesses profound integrity and devoted to the nation? And it summed it all up. And is this a right-wing idea? No, it's not a right-wing idea. If you turn the page very quickly, because I'm taking too much time to this background. Very, very famous from Rav Soloveitchik is this piece, the Kohen Agado symbol of Das Torah. This is Rav Soloveitchik for his Hesped from Chaim Ozer. And in it, it's, a, it's, it's oft-quoted and very, very famous. He gives the essentials of Das Torah in, in the strongest terms. This week's parasha, yesterday, right? 
Tzitzabas, talking about the tzit and the Choshen Mishpat, right? So the Rav, beautifully, in, in, in the only the way the Rav could do it, in, in, in dramatic and poetic fashion, he describes, you know, how the tzitz was one on the head, and that represents the, the Kohen Gadol involved in halacha and din. And then the Choshen Mishpat, which represents his speaking on behalf of Klai Yisrael and in the best interest of Klai Yisrael, that's over his heart. And he creates a whole beautiful idea, and he said, that's the Kohen Agado wore both. And it's important to realize that it's not a contradiction to have both facets, the halachic as well as the, the meta-halachic, or the more than halachic, the hashkafic, and the more, and the interest of Klai Yisrael in the same person. And it's a very, very profound statement of Das Torah. Very, very profound. Rav Aaron Lichtenstein, who's the little paragraph on the bottom, said that the Rav, and here's one who had this so much, you know, back and forth about what's the Rav's opinion really about Das Torah, and there are people that say that he only said that because it then he was part of Agoda, then he became part of Mizrahi, and that, so I think Rav Aaron Lichtenstein, who's touted as, as, as somebody saying that type of thing, what he says the truth is right over here, in his own words, this is from Rav Aaron. He said, he said, it's true that the Rav you know, moved a little away from the dramatic fashion which he presents it in this particular tzitz and the Choshen analogy. But, but, and he sharpened that it, the realization that there is uh, two different areas here. One that deals with other experts. But the emphasis is in the ending. Nevertheless, although he rejected the decisive reach of rabbinic authority in political matters and Others, I would say, medical matters and social business. He was insistent that such matters be determined from a perspective of refined spirituality and in consonance with Torah values. Here's the bottom line. And here's why I don't think there's a machlokas. At the end of the day, that's the bottom line. Every area of life involves Torah, if you're a committed Jew. That's what it means to be a committed Jew. To be a committed Jew means you realize that the Torah is your guide for life. And if it is, every aspect of your life will have a say and a take that needs to be in consonance with the values of the Torah. And that's an inescapable reality. Ah, at the same time, what do we realize? That every facet of life has its experts, and every facet of life will have input from experts. And the pshara for everybody, and this is not a machlokas anymore. Everybody realizes if you're a committed Jew, committed to Torah, and your allegiance to Torah is real, that at the end of the day, so the gedolim, who are the representatives of the best in the, that we have when it comes to understanding of the values of Torah, they have to have a say. And of course, they're going to bring in, when there's deficiency in their personal knowledge of areas of secular life, the experts that are matim. So that's like background to what would have been a controversy, but I, I myself refuse to allow that to be controversial. I think that everybody would agree with this, unless somebody here doesn't. Everybody agree? Okay. Good, so we're good, we can continue. The real discussion though, that's the, that's the uh, path of, of Das Torah, the Gabi of the clock. But where the real issue that has real application in terms of discussion is on personal issues. What about these uh, uh, cases where you know, a medical, let's just put it right into the medical context, because that's what we're going to focus on. A medical decision, I'll give you, just to start the ball rolling. Again, now I'm coming, at this point in my life, this is many years ago. Um, 
I can't believe I'm speaking in terms of many years ago. I feel really old right now. But um, I was called in, the first case I was ever called into to be a bioethicist involved in a case that was happening was somewhere in mid-New Jersey. I won't mention the hospital. I don't want anyone to figure out the people involved. There was a big dilemma in this hospital. In the hospital, there was a family. Actually, someone in this room might remember this case because they, they were working in that hospital. It just hit me. I didn't know that. I'll just uh, keep it between us. So there was um, a family who, uh, from family, that unfortunately had a baby that was born with a condition called trisomy 18. Right? It's a very horrible, horrible, low aleno diagnosis. The prognosis for such a child is 90, whatever, 9% don't make it past the year. It's, it's just a horrible experience for a family to go through. And many of them have heart defects. So the big dilemma is always, what do we do? You know, there's a, it's a heart defect that requires surgery. Surgeons don't want to operate on this child because of the nature of the prognosis, and it's a non-viable child in terms of its development. It's, it's just a horrible situation. But this from family refused to do what many people usually do with this scenario, is if, especially if they know it's coming, you know, they don't inter, they won't intubate and they'll just let you know the compassionate care. That's usually the approach. In this case, this family insisted that everything be done and be treated like a, a normal baby to, to, who didn't have that chromosomal abnormality. The baby was intubated. The baby was um, being treated for a large hole in the heart. It's called just a VSD, which made the baby have heart failure. And, and they were stuck. What do I mean they were stuck? The hospital wanted the baby to be removed from the respirator and let go. The family said, no way, we're not doing that. So into this, they bring me, right? So they, I was going to like solve this unsolvable dilemma. And, you know, it, hmm. I, I said, well, there's no, we can't remove, according to the, even the most make-kill shitas when it comes to end-of-life decisions, nobody says you can actively remove somebody from a, a ventilator necessarily. It's a whole topic. But here, I wanted to... Uh, obviously be sensitive to the family, and then I was really working for the hospital. It was the hospital that brought me in to help sort of navigate the situation and uh, make peace with everybody. So then it occurred to me, the surgeons are refusing, the only way the kid to get, to get the baby off the ventilator, and the family knew the prognosis, and the family was willing to take the baby home if we could get the baby off the ventilator. So the only way to do that was to operate. The surgeons adamantly refused. I went to them face to face. I said, then it hit to me, I said, okay, they don't want to do open heart surgery and start with bypass and things like that, but maybe uh, there's something that used to be done in, in my field that we don't do really very rarely anymore, which is called a pulmonary artery band. For those who are not medically into these things, it, it's a way of doing a very minor procedure compared to open heart surgery that would allow the symptoms to be relieved and, and have the baby up. So the hospital said, we're in. I went to the surgeon. I went to three surgeons. The third one said, I'll do it. Finally, first two still refused. They thought it was crazy. They thought the whole thing was crazy, as you can imagine. And um, I said, okay, not as bad as I thought. I got this thing under control. I was very proud of myself. It was like my first 
bioethics dilemma, and here I am, what a great solution. You know, patting myself very hard on the back. Um, and I go to the family and they say, no. I go, what? I thought for sure they'd be happy with this solution. We're going to do something to get the baby out of the hospital and home with them. What's the problem? What do you have against this? Nothing. We just need to ask our Rebbe. We need to ask our Rebbe. Okay. So I said, fine. Because I thought, the Rebbe's going to agree. This is like a no-brainer, no? So what was the only problem? For me, the Rebbe, for them, they were Chabad. The Rebbe was the Rebbe. And the only problem was... He was nifter already. So, <laughs> so I, I, I was intrigued. And at, and at that time, I was very, I was very new. Like, I was, I was a rookie. I, I go, how are we going to do that? <laughs> what exactly does this entail? So some of you may know already. Now I've heard it a million times. Like, what they do is, um, you know, they write a little letter, and they go to the camera, and they put it there. So I said, oh, that part seems easy enough. I said, let's do it. So we wrote it together, you know, describing our, our dilemma. And what's the Rebbe's opinion? And then I couldn't help myself. I said, how do we get an answer? <laughs> what's going to be? So the next day, and I'll never forget it, the smile on the father's face. When, when he came in, he said, you are going to be the one to get the answer. Go, oh, yeah, okay. You know, what am I going to, like, have the hypnosis? Or what are you going to do to me? He says, no, the way the Rebbe answers is there are like 22 volumes of letters, right? We're gonna, I'm going to give you one of the volumes. You're going to do like the Goral Agra. You're going to open up the, the, the volume, and there it is, whatever it is. So I said, well, this is getting really interesting. I can't wait to see what happens. You know, wow, 22 volumes. It could be on anything, right? If this really is a relevant letter, this is on Gishmak. This is like unbelievable. So I get the, the volume. He opens it up, and it's in Yiddish. So yeah, I don't understand the word. <laughs> so now I'm thinking he's going to pull a fast one, right? He's going to be reading it to me, right? But he read it, and, and enough of the words, I was able to read what, it, what he, you know, follow what he was reading. Bottom line was, yeah, you should do the heart surgery. That was the letter. Oh, I was blown away. I go, wow, this is like, oh my God, my, my cynicism has been misplaced. And then... I realized the volume, the entire volume, is heart surgery questions. <laughs> so I, I became cynical again. <laughs> so this is an extreme example. This is an extreme example, and I'm going to come back to this, because I want you to know that the lesson I learned when I, when I, when I really uh, went through a lot of these kind of cases is there was value to what just happened in there. That I, My cynicism was totally out of line. And that there was... Something going on there, thanks to the status of that Godel, of the Lam Shirebi, that was incredibly meaningful. And I'm going to come back to it. I'm going to come back to it. But first I want to do the sugya a little bit. So on page four, this is from Pirkei Elvis, right? Pirkei Elvis has uh, five prokim of Mishnayot, and then the sixth parak is Brysos. Right? Everyone knows why. Six parak so that we could have between uh, Pesach and Shugur, you know, for every week. So in the sixth paragraph, which is the Brysos, it opens up with a very, very important statement, which is where the sukya of getting advice from Bill Yisrael starts. It says that, Rabbi Meir Omer Kola Osek Lishma, Many beautiful things, right? He's in Ohe Vesam Makom, he's in Vesam Priyos, he's in Vesameach Makom, all those beautiful things. The Nanim Mimenu Eitzah. 
they are going to be the Bali Eitzah. The people that are learning Torah Lishma are going to be a source of great Eitzah. Bisoshia Bino Gvura. And they have tremendous wisdom, and they have tremendous thing, and Hashem Himself, Kivyachal, is the source of this for them. That's what Pikriyavah says. Why is this? Why is it that they are that? Aside from what we said already for the Klaal, this is talking on a personal level. It is going to be worthwhile to get Eitzahs from Gedola Yisrael. Why? So Rosalavichik, right? A beautiful, beautiful piece in Reflections of the Rav. He puts a perspective on it that I really, really appreciate. <coughs> he says, I'm, I'm like saying to myself, is this like, is this like papal or, or, or autocracy? Is like, where they have unbelievable say. The Pope has unbelievable say in people's lives that he can direct for a believing Catholic or an Iman or an Ayatollah. That, that has, is that just all this is analogous to that? So the Rub points out how different it is. The source of the, the, the Eitzah from Dole Yisrael is not imposed. He says like this, the authority of Moshe, for example, is derived from his teaching role and his spiritual uniqueness, not his political stature. The Rebbe does not raise himself. When he starts talking about the Gra and the Baal Shem Tov, it's not just a Hasidish thing. It's the Hasidish Rebbe and the Gra, both of them. People, their lives are influenced and greatly impacted by those people. Why? Not because they impose themselves on anybody. But I'm moving over to the other side. The authority of a teacher is not imposed. No coercion or political instrument is employed. A Torah teacher is freely accepted and joyfully embraced. His authority emerges from his personality, his learning, and respect motivate one's submission. Right? So that we are going to be coupled to, to, to these special people, even in our personal lives. What's the basis of it? The basis of it is personal choice. What's drawing us to do it? The next page, page five. What's drawing us to do it is certain characteristics of the true Gedola Yisrael that just draws us in voluntarily, out of love, out of, out of, out of great impression. What does it mean? So I, I picked two examples. There's so much that can be said on this area, but uh, two that really appealed to me is there's a very, very famous uh, statement in Moed Katan where it says, Ki sifse kohen yishmeru das, besar yavakshu mipihu, ki malach Hashem tzvakosu. It's very important for Jewish leadership, for Rebbein, for Rabbanim to realize the, the, the standard that's set for them. Basically, what this passage means is what the Gemara says, <laughs> you, you want to know what it takes to be a Rav, you've got to be a Malach. What does that mean, you've got to be a Malach? Malach? Like, no Yetahar? That's ridiculous. We're human. Even the greatest Gedolim are human beings. So what does it mean to be a Malach? So there's many different takes, so I just want to highlight two. One is from the Makhdi. The Sefer Makhdi is a great Sefer. Uh, it's an Lumbusha Sefer. And, you know, uh, not for now, but... In it, he, was, uh, he has a Havdama, and in it, he goes and he gives his take on this idea of that a Rav needs to be a mouth. What does it mean? So this is going to be the characteristic number one that you'll see and will be drawn to when you really see what Gedolim are about. He says, Malachim as opposed to human beings, right? Malachim are Omdim, and human beings are Mahalchim. What does that mean exactly? What does it mean a malach is omed while a, while a human being, basar badam, amahacham? It means we, we are constantly, hopefully, growing, growing upwards in terms of our spirituality and, uh, and, uh, and our, our worth. We, we're constantly aspiring to get greater. That's a human being. A malach is what he is. A malach is an omen. So what does this have to do with the Rebbe? Rebbe should be like that? Yes. 
Says, says the Makin, he says, you know what it means when we say that a Rebbe should be a Malach? It means he's got to be totally, no longer concerned with his growth. It's all about the Talmidim. It's all about the people. You have to be selfless to be a real, real Rebbe. It means, and I've got to tell you, this is a big Nisayan for many Rebbeim. You, you're, you're still wanting to grow on your own. You still want to, you still want to give a great cheer. You still want to be the one who's like learning all you know, all of the, the Shulchan Aruch and doing everything you can. But the, once you've taken the responsibility that Christ to be the Rebbe, that's it. Now you're about them, and you have to be completely committed to that. That's number one. That's number one. And number two is the other take, uh, the more Pashat shot on what it means to be a Malach when they say about a Rebbe, is that you need to be somebody of very, very high standard of character, Midos Tuchulim. The Rambam, like, learns it that way. And the Rambam then tells you that you are going to be drawn to Chachamim and should be by their behavior, by their characteristics, the way when you get to know them and you see the way they act. See them, they say, One, I'm a big fan of Rav Asha Ariely. He's a Magachir in the mirror. So th there was a wedding that I was invited to where I knew he was going to be there. He was actually a member of his family. And the highlight for me was just, I wanted to go, I purposely davened Minchler early even though I knew there was going to be a mincha at this wedding, so that I could watch him daven mincha. I just, I had this thing where I wanted to see and experience what he was doing when he was davening. It's, there are certain role modeling characteristics that you pick up just by spending a little time with them, which brings me to my first experience in Eretz Yisrael with Gedol Yisrael, which is really now, from here on in, every point I make, I'm going to try to illustrate with something I was zochet to do, meeting these Gedolim, and seeing what they were like. So I'm going to start with Remichli, who the lefties. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a tremendous gadol. He's a great rock. He was uh, one of the, uh, the, the greatest gadolim of the previous door, previous door. So I had a case, members of his family. And it was a very, very difficult decision about treating the child. And it was, to me, an impossible one. In other words, it was like medically a wash, whether to do treatment A or treatment B. And the family insisted I make this decision. And I was opposed to me making the decision, because it was a decision there. There's decisions in medicine, anyone who's in medicine knows this, where you max out on the scientific, rational part of the decision. And there are going to be options and alternatives, and you have to involve the family. You have to involve the patient, where they're going to need to make some kind of decision. I thought this was that. But they're not listening to me. They're saying, we're not doing anything until you call it. So they said, and we want you to meet the Zeta. Who's the Zeta? Michal Yehuda. I said, wow. Well, first of all, it was a schuss to get to meet him. You have to realize it was very special. I, I knew who he was. So but I'm saying, what's he going to say to me? You know, how, how is he going to convince me? So the part of the, the part of the story that I think is amazing is the way he sized me up immediately. It was on Sukkis. So I'll, I'll never forget it. So uh, the family, like there's a lineup of about 100 people waiting to see him. He's in the sukkah. He's got some really nice sukkah, air conditioning, Baruch Hashem. And because um, I was sweating bullets already, let alone in the heat, right? So I'm like, besides myself, I can't believe I agreed to do this. I'm coming here. Uh, he's going to tell me, he's going to ask me to make the decision, right? So they whisk me in, you know, ahead of all the hundred people, 
I'm like embarrassed a little, like, well, oh, come on, you know, all these people have been waiting in the heat. He's letting me ahead. I, I remember one of my sons was there, not this one, I don't know what happened to him. He, he, he got out just in time. His brother was there, right? So he's in, like, he's in the crowd of people waiting, and they're whisking me up. So this guy comes over to him, so who is that, you know, about me? So he says, you know, I'm Rav Shach's grandson. This was the guy asking him. How come I don't get to come up? <laughs> so the guy goes, yeah, I don't know. I, that's my father. He's nobody. <laughs> so, all right, he's right. 100% right. But I, I, anyway, so I get, I get up to, to Rav Nechel Yehuda, and I'm sweating, I'm going crazy, and I don't know, I don't know what he's going to do. And the truth is, he was already, like, very old. He had been a tremendous Godel, tremendous Tamachacha. Knew everything, you know, like that level of Godel. But as he got older, I had been to... Uh, I had taken my shear. I was, I was a Rebbe in Tarshaga, as, as Rabbi Moses said at the time, and I had taken my shear to meet him. Because that was one, one of the benefits you get if you're connected to the families is they, uh, they take you, you know, to the Gedolim. So I brought my whole shear to see him. And I was a little disappointed because he, he, he was not himself, right? He was older, um, and he wasn't the, the intellectual giant that he was at this point. He gave like a Parsha little thing. And... Um, so I was saying, wow, this is like a surreal experience. I'm going to have this uh, Gadol who's like maybe past his intellectual prime in a certain sense. And what's it going to be like? So he, he, I get in there. He takes my hand. I will never forget this. He sees me sweating. He takes, he takes a nap, you know, he's wiping my head. He's, he's consoling me. He, it was an unbelievable experience to me. The whole thing was about that. He was like, I know they're asking you to do this really difficult decision. It's the worry, the worry, it's not on you. It's just they can't make the decision. They just need somebody to make it for them so that it eases them through this. And then it hit me. I go, wow, that's godless. It's godless. I, did, I was not sensitive to exactly that's what was going on the whole time. Meaning, they, they, they're going to make this decision. What if it didn't go well? Then the family has to have that on their conscience. So the biggest favorite in the world, what Mithli Yehuda was gently telling me, was I was the vehicle to ease, ease this, this process. Baruch Hashem, it worked out. But I got it. I got it. And it, was, it was, to me, tremendous godless what he had done. All right. Okay, so a lot of people will say, though, that that is, you know, okay. And, I, and I'll tell you the same thing. That's what I meant before with the Babaji Rebbe. That family was having the same agony. They knew what was going to be happening with their... This, this child. They believed the doctors. They weren't stupid people. They were very, very smart, and they knew. What the Rebbe did for them posthumously, after he was gone, was enable them to deal with this entire situation. The connection they had to that, to that Godot, and what he re represented to them, the affection that was between them. This, was a, this is a psycho-emotional thing. And, and enabled them to better tolerate what they went through with one of the most horrible things that anyone should experience. So on one element of this topic, Das Torah goes beyond simple um, decision-making and goes into a whole realm of an emotional sensitivity. This is something that really is highlighted by Rav Aaron Luchstein again on page 6. It's very, very important. You saw that Rav Aaron adds to the whole discussion. That's going to bring us into areas where we're going to now say, so is that the only value of going to Gedolin? The only value is this emotional sort of uh, hand-holding and making life easier kind of thing? Or 
are they able to be in a position of making actual decisions that take a, you know, a greater understanding of the scientific reality of some of these situations? So says Rabbi Lechusin, who is very temperate, he's very not an advocate for like blind das Torah. He, he puts like he does everything, balanced perspective. So he says like this. He, had a, he, he, he starts off this essay, an amazing story. He was very close to Ruth Hutner, that's how. And um, he said he learned what Das Torah is really about from Ruth Hutner. What does that mean? He says the emphasis is on the Das. Right? Everyone thinks that I'm going to say the emphasis is on the Torah. Of course, that's Pashut, that Torah is what it's about. And, and the fact that they're Hein Chayinim, they're Chayinim, all that. But the, if you don't have the Das also, you're not supposed to be giving out Das Torah. So what does that mean? What does it mean, Das? So he said, Rav Hutner told me what Das is. But Das is the following. You, Rav Hutner was sitting Shiva at the time. And for his wife. And he said, some Rosh Hashiva came in. He's telling Rav Aaron. Rav Aaron had a, a, a moment alone with his Rebbe. So he's telling Rav Aaron, he said, Could you bring it? I just gotta, I gotta get this off my chest. He said, so this Rosh Hashiva came in, who represents Das Torah. And he says to me, he says, no, don't worry. You, you, you can get over the loss of your wife because she's now in the Olam HaMS and it's much better there. So I, it's, it's hard to use the expression that but Rav Hutter said it. He said, he's got the Das of the Nevela. <laughs> That's what he said. And, and, and he's telling Rav Aaron, and Rav Aaron is like taking it back. You know, like, he's very gentle, but he said, That's Das? That's what you say? That's what you say to the person who just lost his wife? That's not Das Torah. It's not Das. So Rav Aaron was very affected by that, and it, and it really, um, in a great way, contributed to his take on Das Torah. So he says the following. He didn't deny the advantages of going and asking for Das Torah, but he said the following. The world of a true Tamil Chacham, which is advising or directing a questioner, stands on three things. Understanding the world and the neshama of the person who stands in front of him, that's one. Understanding the reality of the situation at hand, a true and honest accounting of his own conscience, which Ravan goes on to explain, is you've got to know when to say, I don't know. You've got to know when to say, this is outside my realm. That's true Das Torah. Das Torah is an incredibly valuable tool. But Ravan said, when, when it's something you don't know, don't fake it. Otherwise, you're not giving Das Torah. It's a very, very important yisod. And now, uh, what I want to do is illustrate these yisodas of Avaron in two other cases I was involved in that we're going to get to see now a little more of the medical halachic kind of analysis, as well as the way it was handled by the Gdol. Start with the following case. This is a case that happened, uh, but this is not that long ago. It's like five, seven years ago. I had a patient that I was following from... Uh, the time he was like a baby. He had uh, a very difficult cardiac lesion that uh, many had told his parents to abort. They didn't. And um, many thought that at birth he wasn't going to make it. He did. Many thought we'd have to do experimental procedures. We didn't. Held off on everything because all the uh, suggested therapies were more dangerous than taking a chance and just leaving this baby alone. But now he was 15 years old, right? So that's pretty good. We made it 15 years. I'm watching him like in the beginning. I remember I was watching him like every week and every month. And then I let it go, I let it go. And then 
Finally, it was like a once a year, and then he started to decline at around, you know, 13, 14. And now I went to the father and I said, we need to operate. Now we need to do it. There's, there's no choice. And the reality is, and this is going to now bring a sugya into play, a medical halacha sugya, the reality is it goes like this. If we don't do anything, he's not going to make it a year. If we do it and things go well, chayolam, he could live many years. He, he will, if it goes well, he will live many years. But the risk is greater than 50% that he's going to die on the table. You got to decide what you want to do. <laughs> so now I was a little more gentle than that. But, but basically, this was one I felt, and you'll see as we do the sugya, that they needed to get involved. So what happened? So this father's Rashiva. He's holding in the sugya that I'm about to do with you, totally. The kid, who's 15, is a prodigy. He's an Eloi. He's also holding in the sugya. The father said, do it. The, the son said, no. I don't want to do it. I want to take my year. Okay. <laughs> you decide. <laughs> They're pointing to me. <laughs> I go, no. They said, actually, we don't want you to decide. We want you to speak to two gedolim, and they're going to help us. Who? Rav Chaim Kalievsky, Rav Don Siegel. Now, you know, this, this was serious business, and I was very excited about getting to sit with them, right, of course. But it was too serious to get gleeful. <laughs> and I was really curious what the, the intricacies of this case, medically, were incredible. So I'm like saying, Yiddish, Hebrew, what am I, how am I going to explain this in any language to these gedolim? That was my, first of all, underestimating gedolim is always a big mistake. You'll see in a minute the way the story goes. And I had a similar case, and I'm bringing, I'm bringing this in at the same time, because it's going to also illustrate the point I'm going to make. Rav Vosner, Rav Vosner, Shevet Alevi, also tremendous gedol from Debrak, had a very similar case with him, and also I had explained it to him. So first, let's just get everybody together onto the background. If you turn to page 7, I want you to see this so you Because you can appreciate, here we finally get to learn a little, right? Is the Gemara... Whoa, how much, um, how much time, uh, much how much time do I have? It's a very snowy day. Super Bowl's what, 8 o'clock? <laughs> All right. Gemara about the Zara, Daf 7. So this, this uh, the Shiloh we're asking, right, everybody's probably understanding it, is when you have a choice between chaye olam, doing something that could possibly give you a long, healthy life, but the thing might take away chaye shah. I could live a few months if you just leave me alone. I could live a year if you leave me alone. But, the, and the procedure might end that in a, in a moment. Can I do it? Do we say or not? Do I worry about the, the brief amount of life I'm giving up in order for the prospects of getting chayol? So there is an incredible sugya in Vodazara uh, that's exactly uh, getting to this point. But you'll see, Pasha learning of this sugya is not enough. You'll see in a minute what I mean. Amarav, Amarav Yochanan, Ramila, Amarav Chista, Amarav Yochanan, Safik Chai, Safik Meis, Ein Misrapimim. What's the setting here? The setting here is the assumption. The, 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 an akum MD, right? It's not a contemporary concept. It's a time when it's over the Avodah Zarah, we consider it very, very much 
killers and hating of us, and you know, did all sorts of arayos, and they did all the bad things. And if you ever read the histories of Herodotus, he has a very, uh, he's a Greek historian who has many descriptions of what it was like. It's amazing that Chazal's description of Odevoda Zara of that time is very, very similar, not that they need to be checked by a secular historian, but it's very interesting to me. I always was fascinated by that. But either way, we're talking about someone who the Gemara feels is going to kill you. So you don't go to a, an Odevoda Zara doctor, right? If Safikai Safikmes, which means that it's 50 50, you're 50 50, you're going to survive. Better to go to no doctor than to go to an Ovid Kochavim because he's going to kill you, right? So it says, Sopichai Sopich Meis, ain't misrapin man. Vaday Meis, misrapin man. But if the prognosis is far worse and you're going to die, right? We'll see how, what Vaday Meis means exactly. Then you could go. Okay, so the Gemara says, but wait a second. Ha'ika Chaisha, but you, if you go to them and they're going to kill you, so you're losing that Chaisha. Isn't it better not to go? even if your prognosis is horrible. So the Gemara says, nope, we're going to pask in this Shailah, the Chayisha lo Chashina. That's the Maskan of the Gemara. We don't worry about Chayisha. We're not worried about you're taking a chance and gambling on a brief amount of life when you could possibly go for a better, fuller type of life. And then the Raya the Gemara brings in to prove this is Minat Temra, the Lahavi the Chayisha lo Chashina, Dechsev, Imamarnu Nabahair, etc., etc. I'll explain what this is going on. Here in Mitzorayim, in Melachim, describes these Mitzorayim that were outside the city. There was a siege by Aram on the city, it's Shamron, that were being, uh, starving the city to death. And these uh, lepers were outside the city. Uh, we'll tell you, I'll tell you who they are in a minute. And um, they were going to starve to death. So they decided, uh, the Navi describes, that we're going to take our chances. We're going to go right into the enemy camp, despite the fact that they might kill us right away. But here we're going to die you know, shortly, after a little while. Let's take our chances. Maybe they'll take us as slaves or just feed us and we'll live. And so they go and do it. And that's the basis for this decision. Now, who were these Mitzrayim? They were Gehazi and his sons. Who was Gehazi? Gehazi is one of the few people Gemara's in Furash is not getting along Haba, right? Uh, he was with Elisha, he, did, he, was, he was a Russia, right? So we're learning this halacha, bear that in mind, from Rishon. That's one of the problems with this idea. But there's, there's many others in trying to understand what's going on here. We, we pass in, now I would love to be ma'ayin in this sugya, I, I want an opportunity to, to show the difference between a Bikiyas Gemara, which we just did, and an Iyun. Ian Gemara, but I don't have any more. I don't have enough time. Maybe to anybody who's going to the yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael next year, maybe we'll have time to, to do that part. But for now, I'll just summarize that the, the Shulchan Aruch Paskins, Shulchan Aruch Paskins, like this Gemara, says pretty much the Chayisha lo Chayshinan, which means what? What are the two possibilities? Mutter or Chayil? Right? That's a bit of a mystery. And there's a lot of other mysteries. We didn't do the Ian, but I'll just get to the mysteries. The mysteries, by the time you're done with this sugya, is number one, the next page. How much risk am I really allowed to take? Right? That has to do with, with uh, 
discussion in Rashi about what does it mean? Remember, what determines the risk you're allowed to take is when it says, if you go to the, to the Ovid of the doctor, Vadai is going to kill you. Vadai Mamish? 100%? Not 100%, but some other percent. So it's a, how much? So Machlok is between Rav Moshe Feinstein and Rav Chaim Ozer and the Achiezer. Exactly how much risk I'm allowed to take. Says Rav Moshe Feinstein, and I, I wish we had time, but he, he analyzes the Gemara. Rav Moshe Feinstein gets more out of every few lines of Gemara than any Gadol I've ever seen. It's just amazing how he reads Gemaras. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an experience. But I'll just summarize it. He said like this, based on his reading of the Gemara and Rashi, he concludes that you're limited with the amount of risk you can take. If the risk of death from that procedure is greater than 50%, also, that was his psalm. Now, in my case, remember, the risk was like 75% mortality. Very high. Very, very high. So according to Rav Moshe, they should not be doing it. The Achiezer disagrees. The Achiezer says no, and he learns. He, I'll give you one of his limudim, is it's the expression, the chayisha lo chayshinam, the mashma'ut of that expression, is we, we disregard chayisha when it comes to picking chay olam, and therefore, any amount, according to the Achiezer, it could be 99% mortality, you, you can choose to take the chance. So that's Machlokis number one. You're going to see what, why this Rosh Yeshiva and his son really needed to go to the big guns for this psalm. The first problem they had was, who's right, Rav Moshe or you know, Rav Chaim Ozer? That's a very difficult decision to make, although Rav Moshe makes it easy because he kind of tells you, you could be Samach on Rav Chaim. But he didn't back off his shita. So they're arguing, and that was argument number one. Argument number two, what exactly is, uh, how much chayisha is there that you're allowed to just not be choshish for? How much? What if the doctor tells you you're going to live two years? So l'chuliyama, that's not chayisha. Right? The, the most extreme shita is one year. Anything more than a year is out. But there's a whole debate amongst the poskim how much it is. And I was very confused about it because I didn't know who to go with. You know, Ramoshi says one thing, the Achiezer says another thing. All these different poskim are saying different things. Then Rav Asher Weiss, which is on page 9, I think, hit it. And I, I personally go with Rav Asher Weiss on the way he approaches this because it makes so much sense to me. And this is a, an interesting... He's a special god of Rav Asher Weiss because... He's really into medicine, for doctors, I guess you should know. His, he aspires to be the, the Tzitz Eliezer of this generation, and he's like very involved. That's how I got very close with him, because uh, I get to talk to him all the time about these things. So his approach to this idea of what, how much chayisha, so he says like this. He, he starts quoting the other sheets. He says, where, where are they getting these numbers from? But Moshe says a year based on trefa, but trefa, why? It's a whole different sugya. He says, nothing to do with this. And then he says, this post is going with this other sugya. It's also, what's the relevance to this decision? He says, I'll tell you what makes sense. He says, I, I, I have a lot of experience with doctors. He says, if a doctor tells you, lo aleinu, you have a year left, they could be way off. It could be several years. That's his experience. The only time they have a pretty good track record predicting it, less than six months. So he leans that way, and I, I thought it was right on the money in my experience. It's very difficult to make those long predictions and say somebody's going to make, you know, doctors are great, but, you know, not that great. 
So, so Ravashu says that you know, he has a very realistic kind of perspective on it. And he says, every case is very, very different. And you have to really talk to the doctor if you're going to pass in this shayla. And, and understand where they're coming up with their number. Because many of them are going to be very vague and very not applicable. And, and this kind of detail is very important to, to get down. So for this, he said already that in our case, my case with these two people, which um, the prediction, the best I could do was say that I don't think he'd make it the year. So already, Rosh Weiss would have not counted that as Chayisha. He wouldn't have counted it. The other post scheme would. Finally, this is the most important bikuach or debate halachically over our case, was, is it mutter to do this, or you're chayv to do it? Shlomo Zaman is an amazing sheet there. Shlomo Zaman Orba. He says, once it's mutter, you're chayv. He was, that's how he felt about pikuch nefesh. He was a very uh, pikuch nefesh-oriented posek in my experience. This is just an anecdotal kind of observation. You know, when you do Hilchel Shabbos with Shlomo Zaman, he's the one most sensitive to pikuch nefesh, you know, most, most mekil, the gabi pikuch nevesh. But, so over here he says, what, pikuch nevesh? He says, if it's mutter, you gotta do it. So the father was, was very influenced by that. The father, the Rosh Hashiva, was very mushpavadis. He says, if we can do it, we gotta do it. But the son said, look at, look at Rav Moshe, what he has to say about it. Rav Moshe Faisin has a beautiful take. He says, who is, who's paskin in the shah? What's the basis of this psaq that we're lo chayshin and lo Gechazi and his sons. They're a bunch of Rishayim. How are Rishayim teaching us halacha? So he says, it must be, and this is something Rav Shechter, Shlita, quotes very, very often. He says, you know, we were talking about autonomy of the 60s, so we don't believe in autonomy. We believe our own bodies are not our property with which we can do anything. We can't injure ourselves. We can't just like, make decisions over our bodies. It's, it's on loan to us, our guf. Our guf is on loan to us from Kadosh Baruch You can't just do with it as you please. No autonomy like that, to, to, to end your life or to hurt yourself. He says, but says Rav Moshe, you know what this Gemara is teaching me? There are certain decisions where you do have full autonomy. A decision like this, you're not choosing to end your life or not end your life. You're choosing between two options of regulating your life, of how your life's going to be. Taking a risk and ending it early for the purpose of living longer versus just Sheva Tase and living within a year. He says, that is a decision that is not, that's, that's a, a person decision. The reason the Gemara B'davka uses Gechazi, because they represent a reasonable human being's decision. And they're teaching you the Psaq, in this case, is it's up to the person. Up to the person. Autonomy here is the Psaq. Says Rosh Hashanah, what are you talking about? It's just a drusha, <laughs> you're over-reading it. But I know Rav Shechter for a fact, quotes this all the time as the basis of, if, if you ask him one of these shadows, he's going to go right to this. And he applies it in other circumstances too. He applies it in many end-of-life decisions, Rav Shechter, also the same type of reasoning. So we have now three complications to the case where they wanted a psaq. So the end of the story is, so I go to Rav Rosner for this, I go to Rav uh, Don Siegel, and I go to Reb Chaim. So what is, I'll tell you each experience, because I learned something from each and every one of the experiences. I go to Reb Chaim Kenyevsky. So again, you know, they're whisking me in, and I'm getting like this VIP treatment. 
I get to Reb Chaim, you know, I'm like, oh, wow, this is pretty exciting. I'm in a private audience with Chaim Kanievsky. They wanted me to say the case in Yiddish. I couldn't. <laughs> so I, I said it in Hebrew to somebody who then said it in Yiddish. I don't know why that had to be that way. I'm sure he knows Hebrew. And um, he says one word. Ach, he, well, it was really a mar mako. He says, that was all he said. So I, I'm like waiting for some more, you know. Like, and by the way, there's autonomy in Gichaz. He just said, And then he'll be always talking about the first part of the Psaq. The first part of the Psaq is we don't go like Rav Moshe, he was telling them, any amount of risk. That, that's that tshuva from the Achiezer. Any amount of risk is good to go. Okay, but I was like, he didn't ask me for any details. He didn't want, and when I'm talking, if you give me the time, there's another case I want to do with the Rebchayim alone, where he's a very special gadol in a special category. So let me shift over to the other two, because what they did blew me away. Rabdan Siegel and uh, Ravosna. Start with Rabdan Siegel, an amazing person. Also, line, they each have lined up of people just waiting to ask the shadows, but I, I asked him, and it was sukkis. I come into his sukkah, and he gives me a little something to drink, right? He wanted to knock in the proper way. And I noticed he's like giving me this amount of grape juice in a cup. And I'm saying, well, what's going on here? <laughs> you know, give me a, give me a drink. <laughs> and then... As I'm about, you know, I'm taking the cup. So he goes, okay, Baruch. He says the bracha with me. And then it hit me. I go, he, he wasn't sure I was going to make a bracha. No? He wanted to make sure I said a bracha. He said, you know, it was a doctor. You know, nothing personal doctors, but who is this guy? And I was like insulted and amazed at the same time. You know, and I was like, he doesn't think I know how to make brachas. I'm like, what is this? But then I realized, what a tzaddik. What a tzaddik. Like, he will not be over on Lish Neiver. You know, it's immediately on his mind. Then he wants to do Achnaz Azorchem and all of it. I go, well, these are special people. And then what he did next was unbelievable. He wanted, and then I'll, I'll, he wanted to know every detail of the case. Every detail. He wasn't working the Ruach HaKodesh. He wanted to give an Eitzah here, but he wanted to understand the whole physiology. How to give him like, and the same thing happened with Ravosna. So Ravosna was amazing. Ravosna is 97 years old. He's preserved. It's like very different than Rechaim Kanievsky. Rechaim Kanievsky, to get to see him, you come on a Friday, everybody lines up and everybody sees him and it's like easy. Ravosner, his family protected him. And he that's why I use the word preserved. He was in great shape. He was 97. And he insisted I teach him first normal cardiophysiology. You know, you know, I went to four years of medical school, three years of residency, three years of fellowship. I spent a lot of time on this stuff. <laughs> You know, how much time do we have here? He wanted the pathophysiology and the physiology. He chapped it immediately. It was unbelievable. I, I'll never forget, I drew a, a diagram of a heart and the defect and the normal and the this and that. Chapped it right away. So at first I was so impressed because I wasn't sure what was going to be. Is this going to be like a Ruach HaKodesh experience? Or how do these Gedolim operate? And he, um, I mean, the funny part of the story of the Rosner, so I brought my kids Remember this? I don't know if you were there. You might have been in Yeshiva. So, but I, I brought, one of my kids was in Shaladin at the time. And um, 
I remember saying, I said, I know, you know, there's a little touchiness between some of the Haredi Gedolim and, and Mizrahi, you know, like, like or whatever, there's politics. So I kept telling my son, they're going to ask you what yeshiva you go to, just say, I learned by Rav Yaakovson. Don't, don't say the name. So we get in there, and first thing is, they didn't let anyone upstairs but me to, to have my physiology session with Rav Yaakovson. And everyone else had to stay down. I was really disappointed. I wanted them to meet him and have the bracha. So finally, at the end of it all, they, we bring them up. First question, who knew what yeshiva you're learning in? Shalavim. <laughs> what is wrong with you? Like, and then Rav Rosen's like, what's a Shalavim? He had no idea what it was. So he asked his son, he asked his son, he whispers in his ear, <laughs> he goes like that. I'm like, oh my God, it's such a bad chidah for my kids. They're going to think, you know, they're biased and all this. And, and then he, with a wink in his eye, Rav Rosen goes like this, we give the brachos to Mizrahi too. <laughs> so it ended up okay. What was amazing, though, is the, it, it totally blew away a myth that, that I myself believed in to some degree, which was they're, they're not going into this blindly. They wanted to understand it. And both Rav Ozner, in the case I did with him, and Rav Dan Siegel at the end, the conclusion they drew, it was what Rav Aaron was talking about. It was beyond their purview. In other words, they realized the medical element here was very significant, and they both said to me, so, new, what do you recommend? And that's the way they were going to go. And, you know, I'll give you the happy ending to this story. So, I, I wanted them to go for it, for sure. I, you know, it was very hard for me to see. I, I, I knew this kid since he was a baby, and I, and I felt it was worth it. I felt that was, you know, my medical intuition, which they gave credit to. I said, is to go for it. Yeah, I, I danced at his chasana, I've been at his kid's bris, he's got three kids now, so very happy ending there. All right, fine. do I have time for one more? Yes. Okay, last case. Last case. Oh, this one, I want to give out uh, just a little extra thing, because I didn't think you'd believe me when I told you the story. So this story that I'm about to share with you is in the, the news. So here are the, the actual news reports of this story. I didn't make enough copies, maybe. I don't know how many I need to make. So there, these are two different articles of the same story. It came, it came out. Here, here's what's going on. This is the greatest challenge in this topic. To me, the greatest challenge is when the Gadol disagrees with the doctor. This is the greatest challenge. This is what it all comes down to. What if you give people medical advice and, and the Gadol says no? And the Gadol says something else? It doesn't have, my only experience with this is this, the one I'm about to tell you. But it, but it, it, it was an eye-opening lesson for me, because I was very cynical about it. I just couldn't believe it. I thought it was wrong. And you know, I'm very respectful of Gidoli Yisrael. So I, I, I want to I bring you through my experience. It starts like this. There was a couple, they came to me with a fetus. He's a fetal child. And the fetus was diagnosed in Israel with something called Epstein's anomaly and a very, very bad uh, type of Epstein's anomaly. So it looks terrible. It looks like the, the, the fetus wouldn't survive, and sometimes they don't. And the prognosis is horrible. So right away, what does an obstetrician tell Noel Lehner a million times? Tell a family, abort, abort, abort. Don't put yourselves through this. So the, this, this is a, a nice from couple from Ramanishko, and they're told, abort. So they go with a second opinion. Second opinion says the same thing. 
I say to them, um, you need to get another opinion, not, not by me yet. You know, I want you to go to the best, someone I consider the best in my field. I sent them to a person in Philadelphia and a person in Boston. Send the, the disc you know, of this fetal study to those two people. Both of them agreed that this was a bad variant of that diagnosis. They weren't shouting abort, right? But they were agreeing with that. So I said, all right, I think it's time for me to see it. I want to see now what's going on, because they were, they were besides themselves. I said, but I'm traveling to America. It was one of my trips into America. I said, send it to my office. Send the disc, and I get it. So I get to my office, and they send the disc, and it was broken. Now, I've had hundreds of discs sent to me to look over. It's the only one that was broken, right? I'm giving you the mystical sort of backing here, but I'm not making up anything. I, my kids always think I make up all my stories. I'm not making up anything. So the guy calls me and he says, what do you think? Did you get the disc? I said, I got the disc, but you're not going to believe this. It's broken. Here's what you got to do, because it was getting close. I say, you need to, have, you can have the baby, because they, they weren't going to avoid But don't do it in Israel. Come to Boston. You'll see that's talked about in this article. I said, come to Boston, because I don't trust, you know, my hospital's a different hospital, and I still am telling them, go to Boston. That's, there's one person who could do this, a very famous surgeon. I think he's got a, a, a grandparent who's Jewish. <laughs> I tried that. I said, this is where you need to do it. They said, don't worry. We got to come. We're not going to Boston. Really? What, what are you going to do? So they named the hospital. I won't name it. But it's one of the most uh, difficult hospitals <laughs> to imagine a baby like this being born into in Israel. I said, why are you doing this? They said, um, we went to Reb Chaim for the final opinion. They went to Reb Chaim Ganyevsky, and he told them, under no circumstances do you go. Everything will be fine. So I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> this was, it was a very difficult thing for me to hear. Because, you know, I, I have the Munus Chachamim. I have, I have it. But I felt that it was wrong. But who am I? I'm going to be a Barachi with Reb Chaim Ganyevsky. I'm going to be in a debate. I spoke to all my Rebbeim about it. You know, everyone's throwing up their hands. What are we going to do with this situation? So they listen to Reb Chaim. You'll read the story. And lo and behold, baby was born. They didn't need any surgery. Everything's fine. So it was big news. He, somehow the, the word got out to the press, and they like publicized it. Five years later, I, and I lost touch with them. Five years later, I get a call from the father. They're telling us we need surgery again. Can we have your opinion? I said, yes. I ran over and I said, absolutely need surgery, Boston. I said, I'm back to Boston. I go, you gotta go to Boston. They said, okay, but, you know, this time they were amenable. Let's just ask Rebchaim again. We have a good track record with him. <laughs> so, and we want you to come and present it to him because we know, you know, you're gonna argue. <laughs> So I, I'm all set to go to Erev Shabbos. I don't forget, this was like lesson number one about the Messias Nefesh of the Gadol. We go there, Rav Chaim was not well. He was not well. This is uh, this year. And, he, and he's not well at all. And um, we need to ask him, Yishayla. So he wasn't taking visitors. This was a closed Friday. But we call in, it's Sakar Safashos. 
And he says, and he hears the family and he remembers them. And he says, okay, come in. So we go, we go to Bnei Brahak on Erev Shabbos. My wife is very excited about that. And uh, I get there. And we get to the door of Ruchayim. Out walks the mayor of Bnei Brahak and two very, very well-known Roshi Yeshiva of Bnei Brahak. They say, don't bother. He can't see anyone. I said, did he see you? No. Well, okay. <laughs> if he didn't see them, he's not about to see us. So we, uh, we head out. I said, I'm sorry, we'll go another day. We'll go when he's feeling better. So, you know, it's about, from my house, it's about a 50-minute drive or an hour to get to Bnei Brak on Arab Shabbos. Getting close, we start leaving, we start back on the highway. And this is like an amazing part of the story. I got a WhatsApp from Rukhaib's grandson, which is an incredible thing. I don't know if you know why that's it's incredible. Right. But it was, it, it, with yeah, exactly. But I, I said, what? And it was from them, come back, he wants to see you. We go all the way back, another 40 minutes to get back from turning around on the highway, we get back to Rukhaib, and again, he's just, he like, he's like fainting. He's just too high. I said, maybe we should take him to the hospital. <laughs> like, what's going on? And they, they, you know, he's not in a position physically to, to deal with this. So again, we start to leave, but, you know, he is fighting it. Because I just, I just want to make this point about, he's so dedicated to, to Klausel and to being able to help, despite, you know, being in the condition that most people would not have even given it a second thought. He's trying to help. Make a long story short, we, we didn't successfully get to him that day. Uh, that Sunday, finally, he gave his say. What was his psaac? Yes, surgery. That he agreed with that. But in Eretz Yisrael. So, what was the argument about here? Was, was, was Reb Chaim, and, and I'm saying this as devil's advocate, not that I believe it, was he overstepping his bounds as a post as a Gonfa? Was he overstepping his bounds? Because that's the way I was thinking about it at first. Maybe he is. You know, like, the doctor is saying, this, what's driving me? So what's driving me is, um, just quick, page 10 is where there's many, many, many statements by many gedolim on the right to the left that we don't operate L'malim and Ateva when it comes to these types of shadows. Okay? And the Balatanya is on the bottom. Balatanya is very famous for agreeing with that idea. I wanted to go on record as saying that. But I was driven by this. It says in the Shulchan Aruch, Nitmer HaTorah Rishus L'Rofer L'Rafos U'mitzvahi U'bichlal Pikoch Nefeshi Rule number one is the way we live our lives. In this world, the din is you're chayiv to take care of yourself. And what does it mean to be taking care of yourself? To go to doctors. Not to rely on miracles and not to rely on, on something l'malam in That's the fairish in the Shulchanam. We'll get back to that line in a second. The Birke Yosef on the first din says like this. Part of this halacha, this halacha, this isn't like drush, this is straight halacha. You're chayiv to go for the best, most capable doctor for your situation. That's part of the chayiv. The best one to take care of. So I said, to me, this particular baby needed this guy in Boston, and that's what was driving me. Doesn't chayiv know his shachanar? That's like a joke, by the way. He knows backwards and literally backwards. 
but he was thinking something else. And I, I, I think what, you're, what I want to share with you is what I think, and I'll show you why I have a riot, that this might have been exactly what he was thinking. Obviously, he didn't go over it with me. But I think the source of his approach was not Lamala Minotava. He wasn't doing what people always attribute to him. You know, like uh, some miraculous Nevoa that's coming in. That's not what he was doing. He, he just knew the Sugi better than me. How surprising. He says like this. He says, Vafil Yishlodim, Shulchanar says, Vishir Afeno Shalom Inakol Adam Zachariz Rabbis. What does that mean? So I said the Pshat was like the Birka Yosef. The Pshat is, and even if you have a doctor that could take care of you, it, not every doctor is meant for every patient. So don't assume you got the right one. You got to get the right one. So I thought that meant the best one, going to Birka Yosef. But there's much more to it than that. So if you turn the page, there's now, now I'm going to go outside the hallway to, in the interest of time. There is a famous Ran in the Dharm, and the Dharm talks about a person is Moder Hana. So a person says, I will not get any benefit from another person. So what are they allowed to get from that other person? So they can't get any type of benefit from the other person, but they could do mitzvahs. They could do mitzvahs. And mitzvahs are lav linaos. There's no hana from the mitzvah. So you could do a mitzvah. So if somebody, let's say, I, I'm older, I'm not going to give this person any hana. So, but Hashavah Sadeida I could do. He lost something, I, I find it, I could give it to him. Because that's a mitzvah. That's not giving hana. So the Gemara says, the Mishnah says, there's now a split. What page? I'm on page 12. Okay. It says, Merafeu, the Gemara said, the, the Mishnah said, Merafeu, Rufus, Anefesh. Right? You can give Rufus Hanefesh, Avalo, Rufus Mamon. What does that mean? So it's an interesting discussion in the Gemara, but the Maskan of the Gemara is the following. And the Maskan of the Ram says you're allowed to give them uh, themselves Rufus. You could give them, so any doctor here who's forbidding Hana to any individual, good news, you can still be their doctor. Right? You can take care of them medically, but you can't be a veterinarian to them. You can't take care of their animals. Right? That's what it means by nefesh versus mama. Right? Taking care of their animals, says the Ran, of course you can do that, because that's the, the maximum hashavah sadeidah. If you're allowed to do hashavah sadeidah, the person is about to lose their prized animal that's worth a lot of money. So if you, say, if, you, if you would say that, you would think that's okay. So how could it be that it's not okay? So says the Ran, it must be there's someone else to do it. And if there's someone else to do it, then you can't do it. So now that we say the case is one where there's someone else to do it, that's true by the part of the doctor for the person. So the Ran says like this, even if there's someone else to take care of this person, you're still allowed to do it as a mitzvah. Why? Because lo mikol adam zochel Because there's, for everybody who's ill or aleinu, a chosen one, I'm going to purposely be dramatic about this, to be the doctor. So, okay, and we pass in that way. That's a psaq. And not only are we passing that way in the context of Nadarim, there's a major machlokas, but in many other areas, we use this principle. For example, uh, a, you know, a Kohen is not allowed to be in a room with a ghostess, right? Because Shema the ghostess will die, and then that's too much Kohen, they can't be alone with the ghostess. However, if you're the chosen one, that's Doche, that is sir. Then you can be. And even more than that, a child can't treat a parent. 
right? Because they might accidentally make them bleed. And Chabadov, or even Bishogig, is a big, big Syrian Sahedrin, is a big problem. But there are many that are material. Why? Because maybe you're the chosen one for your parent. And, and there's, there's like five other examples in Halacha where we use this. One of the ones that I, that, that's very incredibly important, Ramosha Feinstein is against doctors who are on call, right, on Shabbos, going home. You have to stay in the hospital. And he, want, you know, he understood that Dechuya, that Shabbos is Dechuya, that concept, means you've got to do everything you can to avoid, remember we discussed this at great length, is you've got to do everything you can to avoid being on. However, says Rav Moshe, if let's say you're the person on call. So, he makes an exception over there. He makes an exception using this principle. So this principle has wide application. What about over here? Rav Chaim's using it. Rav Chaim's using it, and I'm using it, but in very different ways. I thought it's the best person. That's what it means. What else could it mean? So if, if you turn the page, there's Makaros uh, that I think explained to me what Rav Chaim's reasoning was. What would be a reason that somebody special should be a doctor for somebody else? Having nothing to do with that they're the very, very best. They're meant, most of the time, what's the reality? We're all the same. You know, for treating most things, most doctors are the same. You know, we all you know, have the very similar approaches to many of the same problems. Yet, one of us is the chosen one. What is it that does that? So why should that matter? Is this like some kind of magical thing? This din? It's a real din. It's all over the Shulchan Aruch. Or is this some kind of logical, rational, Sephardic thing? Which one? So I, you know, being the hyper-rationalist that I am, I, I, I tended towards some kind of Svara. So the Svara I liked was uh, brought down by several Achronim, where they say it has to do with the psychological effects of the familiar doctor. In other words, the best one for the patient is the one they're comfortable with. That's who they should go to. Right, I'm beginning to say, maybe that's Reb Chaim's impetus. You know, this is one possibility. Who are they comfortable with? And it's not just the doctor they're comfortable with. Let's make it the whole setting. You know, in Eretz Yisrael, is much better for a family that's from Eretz Yisrael than going to America, right? So maybe that's what's going on. It's the comfort level. You know, it's real as the rush says, you know, when a person is chodol, another person, so they're chayim, all sorts of things to pay up. So one of them is repoy. So the, so the rush discusses, well, what if I'm a doctor, I injured this other person, can I just treat him for free and then he's chayef to take that and I don't have to give him the money to get a doctor? So the answer to the Rosh says, no, because you, you, he's like, thinks you're a crazy person that hurt him. He's not comfortable with you. So the, the Rosh Paskins, therefore, based on that, it's got to be someone else. So I was thinking, maybe this is like the explanation. Then I was reading Rav Zilberstein. And Rav Zilberstein is a close companion of Rav Chaim. So I said, he's talking about this very issue, and I think he hit it. He said the following. He said that when it comes to which doctor should treat a person, he's poskining this. He quoted this Gemara of Adazar. He said, Yisurin b'shashir, he's, let me say it, I'll tell you something, I'll end this much more quickly. He said, Yisurin that happened to people, he says there's a designated time, there's a designated place, there's a designated cure, there's a, there's a designated curer. That's the source. He says, it's a, it is a semi-metaphysical thing. In other words, what the Torah is telling you is 
there is no Mikolayim Thomas, but Shamayim decides. So I'm saying, wow, this is really getting Ramadan in the And Rabchaim's going that way? Okay, you know. Tori, I submit. But then Rav Zilberstein continues and he says, and just to fully explain, he gives a svar to the whole thing. He says like this, he says, what is the, what is the opportunity a doctor has? Tremendous chus for a doctor to take care of people. Tremendous chus. It's one of the greatest mitzvahs you could do. It's an unbelievable opportunity. He says, that's Shamayim's cheshvam. Who is it that deserves most the opportunity for this kiyom mitzvah, this opportunity of chesed, this opportunity of helping another person? That's how Shemayim decides, and that's the, the chosen one. The chosen one is, at this moment in time, Klape Shemayim, this person is the one who should be Zohar for the calculations that Shemayim, only Shemayim can make. So uh, the implication was, you know, the, 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 the one thing that I ultimately was asked, and it, it, I, I was clueless until the end of this entire conversation, was... How much better is the guy in Boston, really, than this guy? I, I said, I'll bet, you know, the one in Israel, he, he's nowhere near, let's say, as famous, but to be honest, he probably could do it. He just doesn't have the reputation and the godless of this guy in Boston. And I figured, let's go for the best possible guy. And I was wondering, why are they, like, why are they pinning me down to be more precise about this? I'm just telling you, this is the best guy. Go. No. What was going on was, if, if they're in the ballpark, and this is what Zilberstein concludes, two doctors that are in the ballpark, whether it be for the comfort level of the first approach to understanding Lomikol Adam, or to this, this, this will be machria. In other words, if he's not really so advantageous, if he was, they would have agreed with the Birke Yosef, of course. If this person in Israel would kill the person, or not, you know, really not know what they're doing, and this person is like the greatest thing, you know, the greatest surgeon in the world. Of course, Rukhayim would have agreed. But since the, what he was presented with was, you know, they're close. They're close. So he was machria on the basis of the doctor who's living in Eretz Yisrael, that's a big schos, the, the comfort level for the family, and taking the total picture into his mind. So at the end of the day, even Rukhayim, who's the one most often touted as being a gadol who's operating continuously, which is difficult for people with Western biases to fully appreciate. Even he, according to Rob Zilberstein, is being understood in this way that, of course, it's, it's, a, it's a strong basis in terms of that Gemara's concept that there is a chosen one. But it's, it's based on ultimately what, in his view, is in the best best interest of the people that he has dedicated his life to taking care of. Thank you so much for indulgence. Uh, 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 with the doctor. Uh, so it's very embarrassing. So it's